The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On the investigations, I know for a fact none of this would be happening without the work of the January 6th committee. You know, when we started that first hearing where we really kind of launched into what we had, we saw the fever pitch at the DOJ change substantially. And the focus, and I've heard you talk about this on places like the Bulwark, you know, the focus went from, we're going to put these little people away who broke the law and deserve it. Uh, and now, oh crap, there is enough evidence to go after the big fish here. And, uh, and, and I think there is no doubt that Donald Trump is guilty of what we said he's guilty of and what Jack Smith has said he's guilty of. I think there's no doubt. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 23rd, 2023. The other day before a live audience, we had our Lawfare year-end extravaganza. It was two hours long, so we've broken it up for purposes of the podcast. In this episode, you'll hear my interview with Adam Kinzinger, former representative and member of the January 6th committee, who headlined the event. We talked about the big national security stories of 2023, both domestically and abroad, we talked about what to expect in 2024 and how the international stories are linked to American domestic politics and dysfunction. It's the Lawfare Podcast Year-End Edition Part 1, A Conversation with Adam Kinzinger. Welcome, everybody, to Lawfare's year-end, or maybe year-beginning, year-transition event. We've never done one of these before, but we thought it was time. We were big kids now, and we're going to uh, uh, do a bit of a roundup of what we've been up to and what we've got coming. And uh, joining me for the first part of the show is Representative Adam Kinzinger, or I should say former Representative Adam Kinzinger, because he's Kinzinger unchained now, um, uh, unshackled by by his uh, by by the House of Representatives. Um, I, I said to him, you know, as I was texting him to invite him, that I could not think of anybody other than him who was as well positioned to discuss the incredible range of things that Lawfare covers, uh, both uh, Trump trial stuff, cybersecurity, flying airplanes, you know, drone strikes, Ukraine, 
uh, he uh, is uh, perhaps the member of Congress whose interests most closely approximate lawfare's interests. Uh, he is a disgrace to his family and to God, <laughs> but he's a great friend of the site. Uh, welcome, Representative Kinzinger. Thanks. It's good to be with you. It's good to be the disgraced and uh, and and best guest possible for you guys to open this up. So and you bet you for, for those who don't quite get the introduction, uh, can you explain? <laughs> yeah, because they're like, disgraced they're like, they're, man, they're like that a, doesn't sound like a nice introduction. Ben's a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> so look, it's uh, what was this back right after I voted for impeachment? I I went and visited. My parents, so they lived about an hour south of me, and I'd go, you know, once or well, probably once a month, really, just for a day or so. And it happened to be the day I went down there, a certified letter, like anybody even sends those anymore, but it shows up at my house. And I noticed the return address is from some relatives, and I'm like, oh, cool. So I open it up, and and I'm thinking, because I'm an idiot, that like this is going to be some compliment, like, thank you for standing by your principles. You make us proud. Like, why would anybody send that? And uh, it just uh, opened up with like, oh, my, what a disgrace you are to us and to God. You know, you have you have joined the devil's army. And I mean, it went on and on and just including what I, I just somebody reread that whole letter for me recently. I hadn't seen it in a while. And, and it, one of the things was like, don't you know that Donald Trump just gave the whole plan of salvation on television. And I'm like, wait, is this the same Donald Trump that said he's never had to ask God for forgiveness? Like that kind of seems to violate the plan of salvation. So that's what it is. Yeah. So I'm a uh, disgraced, you know, whatever. And that's yep. fine. Well, you you know, you're, you're, you're always welcome at lawfare Thank uh, you. <laughs> where, where we're all disgraces to, to our families and God. Um, so uh, get us started here. Um, when you think about the last year and the coming year, uh, the the number of stories, the number of issues that have major national security valences are is actually amazing. And yeah. how do you prioritize them? And to what extent do you distinguish in your mind between the foreign policy side of things and the domestic policy side of things? Well, it's look, I think domestic and foreign policy is way more linked than people realize. You know, let's just take the easiest example is energy, right? Energy used to be considered a domestic policy thing. I was on the Foreign Affairs and Energy and Commerce Committee, and I was, before it became cool, I was like the first member of Congress to make the link of saying, you know, U.S. energy production, U.S. energy strength has a direct impact on national security. I would also argue, of course, American democracy and the threat that American democracy is under right now has foreign policy implications beyond anything else we're seeing. Because if the U.S. falls into this soft autocracy, if Donald Trump wins again, the impact to the rest of the world is immeasurable. And it'd be great for China, great for Russia, great for North Korea, great for all our enemies, and all our allies would be scrambling. So if I would prioritize kind of the most important stories that we're sitting on right now, when it comes to even just specific foreign policy, American democracy is number one. Um, again, you know, this is when you start violating rules and violating standards and violating norms and orders, you never get those back in self-governance ever. And the only thing you need for self-governance to, to succeed is this basic contract among people, not on issues, not on anything, except that we get a chance to vote. 
the person that gets the most votes wins and, you know, and they get to govern. Like that's all you need and, and democracy can survive. Second most important, I think, is still Ukraine because, you know, this is the first really major war on the European continent since World War II that's just seeking to completely change the order, change the boundaries, change the, the borders of a country a country that's fighting, obviously, for freedom. I won't go into all the Ukraine stuff because we're all experts on here. We know all about it. But I think one of the biggest things is, does the U.S. abandon Ukraine or not? And, and the reason I think that has more of an impact than just Ukraine, I mean, I'm still quite bitter about how we left Afghanistan. And I give blame to both Biden and Trump on that. Actually, I think they both share it. Um, but you look at, in essence, almost every time we've engaged militarily, we always end up abandoning somebody. And Afghanistan was obviously no different. And now if we turn it and abandon Ukraine, and we're not even fighting, we abandon them just in support. I have a hard time seeing how in the next year to 10 years when we end up in another major war, which will happen, how, how do we get people to fight with us? How do we get people to believe in us? And so I think the implications of Ukraine go far beyond Ukraine as well. And then, of course, Israel and Gaza, I, I think, you know, this certainly has the potential to blow up into something much bigger as we look at Yemen and these attacks on the U.S. and bases around Syria and Iraq. Um, if, in fact, Israel is able to kind of destroy Hamas in the next few months, and uh, then it may end up being just kind of a regional fight that doesn't have broader implications. So that's why I still put that third at the moment. But yeah, there's some there's some massive threats out there right now. And so that's kind of how I'm looking at this year. And next year is going to bring some surprises we probably haven't even thought of yet. Yeah. So I want to talk about the interaction between these two, because like, you know, five years ago, if you had said the, the number one national security story is domestic democracy, mm -hmm. that would be an extraordinary statement. Um uh, there were a few people making that argument, including me, in 2016. But, um, you know, the idea that, um, you know, you would, you would look around the world at the threats that we face and say, number one is our own domestic politics. That's a remarkable statement, and I want you to justify it, because I think a lot of people listening will say, oh, that sounds like Trump derangement syndrome, or that sounds like, you know, something a little bit panicky to group this, you know, higher than Xi Jinping invading Taiwan, right? Mm -hmm. So to the skeptic who says, okay, yeah, our politics are ugly, but come on, there's Al Qaeda out there. Make the case. Why should we be more worried about our domestic politics than about AQAP. Yeah, I think it's a great question because if let's think about this. If and let's hope this is a God forbid example that will never happen, but let's say Ukraine succumbs totally to Russia and Russia occupies all of Ukraine, there's no resistance, it's over, right? U Ukraine is effectively part of Russia now. Well, at least still we know in present day how this would happen if that happened tonight. We know that the U.S. is still present as a kind of calming backstop to broader implications. Now, this has that would be devastating, and I'm not downplaying that. But when it comes to, OK, now is NATO at threat? Is, is our other allies at threat? Well, we know that the U.S. backstop to defend NATO will still be present and that 
if Russia should so choose, which they most likely wouldn't, but if they would choose to provoke NATO, it would be the end of Russia as we know it. Same with Taiwan, right? Taiwan would have chilling and massive implications in Asia if, if China invaded Taiwan, and let's say the U.S. even didn't defend it, and Taiwan fell. Then what? Well, we still know that there's the U.S. backstop, even though we were damaged in not defending Taiwan, but there's a U.S. backstop in places like South Korea, Japan, etc. So these broad things we're seeing today have an implication for kind of the first domino to fall for the second and third domino. Second and third order effects would exist. If the U.S. government Basically, if democracy fails here, and I'll quickly make the case for why it could after this, but if democracy fails here, you've now taken away the U.S. backstop in any of these world events. So what is Ukraine today could easily much more be uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania. Do we really think if the U.S. was out of NATO that uh, Russia would expect a fully united European front against Estonia, Latvia? I mean, who knows? But much less likely. So, but the reason it's that actual democracy is a threat is again, getting back to when I said the only thing we need for democracy to survive, for self-governance to survive, is that like compact between each other. Like Ben, you and I, we probably agree on more things than not, but let's say we agreed on nothing, right? Nothing at all. You were pro-Russian, you loved Putin, everything else, right? And but we could still exist in a democracy because you would vote your way, I'd vote my way, and we were playing by those rules. What Donald Trump did, not just on the 6th, but frankly, everything leading up to the 6th, was he convinced half of the country that the rules are, are not accurate. They don't play. They don't count. They're, you know, they're, they're rigged. And so it's like baseball. If all of a sudden the Cardinals are playing at home and they decide they're going to run to third first and then directly home – the umpires can do everything they want to try to stop it, but they're like, no, it's our play. This is what we're doing. The game of baseball would fall apart in the same way. If you decide to play by different rules as Trump has, democracy falls apart. And the U.S. look, will we still be a military power? Maybe, probably. Will we be a military power for good? Probably not. And so that's why I think this is a serious threat to the world is you'd be removing the U.S. backstop, not to mention, of course, all the garbage that would happen here and what it would mean for us. So what do you make of, you know, the, you know, leaving aside your top three, there are all these other, there are all these other threats, right? Yeah. Five years ago, we all would have put terrorism at the top of the list. There's uh, a whole range of cybersecurity threats, some of which interact with the Russia, uh, China stuff, some of which don't. Um, there are, uh, uh, you know, you do have this feeling that the list of threats and the severity of them, they're so diverse and so many now that it gets to be kind of hard to prioritize them. It gets to be like, it's like living in a, a I don't know, the middle of a drum that somebody's beating on. Um, what's, what's the right way to sort of stay disciplined and not go insane? Um, when you're sort of surrounded by Taiwan's going to get invaded, Hong Kong's being obliterated. Um, it's, uh, you know, you've got Russia and Ukraine, you've got Donald Trump wants to destroy NATO and just have an autocracy here. Just what's the, what's the centering 
mechanism to think about national security in a way that doesn't drive yourself insane? Well, I think first off, it's the reminder that we are, you know, the, the reason the U.S. feels like there are threats everywhere is because if you're Iran, you only have to be good at one thing. Let's say it's cyber. In their case, they have missiles. You know, Russia is good at land war. They're not good at land war, but they have a land war capacity. You know, China has their ships. Uh, Iran has, you know, a nuclear program and they have their fast ships. So there's like little areas that are always kind of needling and showing exposing weaknesses in the United States. And so our problem is we have to be able to defend against all of that, right? Now all of a sudden space is a frontier, so we have to build a space force. Now all of a sudden Guyana is at threat because of an oil region, and so we have to be ready to react for that. So how do you think of it as the best thing we can do here, and I think we actually do a pretty good job of it, although you know certainly government could be more nimble, is we have to be able to defend ourselves. And I think we can do that really well. Um, even on the cyber side of things, there's, yes, something can get through, I'm sure, but we have good offensive and defensive cyber capability. We have good intelligence on cyber. And then we have to maintain a capacity to react. And so from our safety perspective, the ability to defend yourself is important. The ability to be able to react is important. Now, if Taiwan, South Korea, Russia, you know, Iran, everything kicked off all at once, would we be overwhelmed? Yeah, to an extent we would. We still have a very intense military capacity, but the likelihood of something like that happening is, is pretty low. The thing where I think we should get stronger at, and this is what I try to encourage thinkers all the time to think about, is we are... If, there's these interests, I can use the Air Force because I'm intimately familiar with it as an example. The whole time in Iraq and Afghanistan, we were burning the life out of like F-16s to do cast, to do close air support. So an F-16 would go up, fly about a six hour mission, maybe drop a bomb, maybe do a show of force and it would go home. And we burned our, our F-16s. In fact, their lives are probably gonna be two decades shorter because of the amount we were flying them. We were also spending whatever it was, $20,000 an hour to fly an F-16. Whereas there were things like the AT-6, which is a light attack fighter that runs about $5,000 an hour. Uh, you can burn the life out of those all you want. And in an area where there's no surface to air missile capability, these are actually better at close air support. But the Air Force doesn't want to do it because if you start buying things like light attack fighters, you have to buy less F-35s and F-22s, and that's their pet project. So now we have F-35s having to go into an area without a ground threat and do cast, which just wastes American money. So I think what we need to start thinking about is how do we fight both irregular and quote unquote, I hate the term, but regular warfare at the same time. Why is it that a fighter pilot can only be registered to fly an F-16? Why can't he fly an AT-6 as well? It's the exact same mission, just a different plane, and it could save the taxpayers a lot of money and capacity. So that's my short answer, my long answer, I guess, to your question. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. 
And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so uh, let's take your top three areas, go back to them, and imagine that Joe Biden calls you and says, Adam Kinzinger, you're a great American. I really, I'm going to do one thing on your advice on each of those three areas. So what should I do to protect democracy, save democracy? Number two, what should I do on Russia, Ukraine? And number three, what should I do on Israel, Gaza? Uh, you get one thing for each each one. What are they? Well, I think it's, it's really easy. For democracy, it's win. You have to win in November. Look, I'm not a Democrat, and I, I'm keep I keep my Republican stripes because it pisses off pisses them off more than I do. So I'm not going to get rid of it, you know. And I'm still a, a centrist and a right person, um, but he's got to win. I mean, that's all it comes down to. And if I was giving him advice, it would be you've got to do something about the border, no matter what you believe in it. It is a politically killer issue right now, and that's not going to change. And I think, you know, yes, the, the Republicans don't know where they are on the border. The House has no actually official position, but work with the Senate, get to that conclusion, because now you guys can own the border issue in November, because, you know, then the president can always say like, well, look, I, I did what they wanted. OK, there's still a problem. Yes, I did what they wanted, but it will actually help the problem. So I think the most important thing he can do for democracy is win in November, period, and try to win big. So, you know, any which there will be accusations of a stolen election, but it becomes more absurd. In Ukraine, it is, look, this is so frustrating to me. When I was in Congress, like we would be lobbied by two different sides here of, one is the army that would say, we have way too many Abrams tanks. And they would show us thousands of them, like basically parked in a stockyard because on the other end, we're getting lobbied by, I think it's General Dynamics that makes them, that's saying, look, we have all these tank parts. You know, they do the little thing where, the, uh, you know, one piece of the tank is made in every state and uh, we can't shut down these factories. So Congress always ended up plussing up the number of tanks that the army was required to buy. So we have like, I don't know, five, 10,000 tanks, whatever the number is today. And we've given Ukraine 20, 30 Really? Like, we literally have tanks that are going to be rotating out of stock and probably destroyed because they're too old. So give Ukraine the tanks, give them the attackums that they need, allow them to open up a significant front in Crimea. They've already pushed back the Black Sea fleet. 
Um, so, you know, obviously I'd tell him, give Ukraine the next aid package, but you asked what I would tell him, not what I would tell Congress. What I would tell him is we have so much in the inventory that we're never going to use. And if you have, you know, he had generals telling him, and I heard this basically from a second order source that was pretty close to this, that we don't have the ATACMs to give to Ukraine. Well, then we actually got the inventory numbers of the number of ATACMs we have. These are those long range 350 kilometer missiles. We have plenty of them. We have plenty of them. Now, if we get into World War III, we probably will need more, but that's why you spark up the industrial base, right? To get that going. So give them everything they need because they won't lose as long as, as they have everything they need. And, and the only thing Ukraine has to do really is not lose. Um, although we'd love to see them take all their land back. And then on Israel, it's just, you've got to, I mean, I think it's important to be the calming voice to Israel, to keep stressing things like, you know, don't bomb civilians. But in, I think Israel's actually done a pretty good job of trying to avoid civilians in such a dense urban populated area where they use human shields. I think the best thing I would tell Biden is just, you know, you can give them a timetable, but let Israel finish the job, let them destroy Hamas, and then pressure these Arab countries to actually produce the governing and peacekeeping force in Gaza. Uh, you know, there's talk about, uh, is it going to be the Palestinian Authority or is it going to be Israel that runs Gaza? I would put pressure on Egypt, on Jordan, on these countries that have been quick to criticize Israel to actually put in a peacekeeping force. And I think it would work, but that would be my top three pieces of advice. All right. So I want to go back to your service on the uh, January 6th committee. Uh, it's been now a year since you guys wrapped up, uh, during which time a lot has happened, most recently the disqualification decision in Colorado, but also the various indictments, both in Georgia and in uh, federal court here in Washington. And I'm curious for your reflections. I mean, I would think you would have a lot to be satisfied with about the fallout from the work that you guys did, but I'm, I don't want to assume that. So uh, tell me about how you're feeling about the January 6th committee work. And particularly if there's, if there's significant parts of the story that you really wanted to tell that you guys didn't get a chance to tell, uh, what are your thoughts a year out? Yeah, look, I'm I'm very pleased. You know, the I guess if, if there's an area I'm not pleased about, it's just that, you know, we couldn't move the public opinion needle in the Republican Party. Now, in hindsight, I should have expected that. Um, but I really, truly believe that in 10 years, there's not going to be a single person that's a Trump supporter today that will ever admit that in mixed company. Because I think right now we have such a there's such an emotional attachment and there's this anger that exists, you know, and so people are rallying around their guy. And even if he's lying and he's insane, it doesn't matter because these these weakling, you know, sheep have to seek safety in numbers. And so, and that's what basically, that's what MAGA is, to be clear. It is a movement of weak victims in their own mind. They're victims of everything. They're weak, they're followers, they're sheep. And they have to follow this guy that's a completely broken, sick, lying man. Well, he's eventually going to pass away or go away, whichever it is. And uh, this, this movement of weaklings is going to be left trying to find a purpose and then they're going to go back to a different group and and be embarrassed. So 
That would be my only regret is that we couldn't shift the needle, but it, it may not have been possible. I mean, I think Jesus could have come in and testified and it wouldn't have changed any minds. Now, on the investigations, I know for a fact that we none of this would be happening without the work of the January 6th committee. You know, when we started that first hearing where we really kind of launched into what we had, we saw the fever pitch at the DOJ change substantially. And the focus, and I've heard you talk about this on places like the Bulwark, you know, the focus went from, we're going to put these little people away who broke the law and deserve it. Uh, and now, oh crap, there is enough evidence to go after the big fish here. And, uh, and, and I think there is no doubt that Donald Trump is guilty of what we said he's guilty of and what Jack Smith has said he's guilty of. I think there's no doubt. I mean, for 187 minutes, he proactively, for the first time in his life, resisted public pressure to act. And he only did anything when he saw finally that the, you know, uh, law enforcement had turned the tide of this fight. Um, what the areas I wish we could have pushed harder Look, one of our most valuable players besides Kevin McCarthy, like it, it's it's rich. He pulls the members off because Donald Trump tells him to. And then not that long ago, Donald Trump attacked him for pulling his members off the committee. I'm like, what? A, and he now we said he would go serve Donald Trump. It's just incredible. But, um, you know, he uh, one of our best is uh, was Mark Meadows because he initially lied to us th through his attorney and said, that there's nothing on his personal phone that X, Y, and Z, his attorney sent that to us in writing. Boy, if there is anything, we'll give it to you. Well, then he found out there was this, you know, there were all these kind of private phone text messages with some of the people around January 6th. So they sent that to us. Meadows quit cooperating after that. But those few texts we got really opened up the roadmap of our entire investigation. So I wish we could have gotten more from him. And more from Dan Scavino, who's the Trump whisperer on the internet. This is the guy that, you know, does, he's basically the, the intermediary between Trump and the far right on the internet. The good thing is Jack Smith has more tools than we did. And I think he'll get to the answers on Scavino. And it appears, you know, that, that Meadows is actually cooperating. So I think the information we had would have held up in court. But now Jack Smith, I think, is going to have an ironclad case. Yeah, so I want to ask you about the relationship. You're in an you're in an unusual position here. You're, uh, though not a prosecutor or a lawyer, you are intimately familiar with the evidence in the January sixth case, or at least in the precursor to it, which was the investigation you guys did. You're also a politician and a Republican politician who has a lot of sophistication about the Republican voter and the, the, the center of gravity of Republican public opinion. Um, there's been some interesting data recently that suggests that a fair number of Republicans would have second thoughts about supporting Trump in the event of a conviction. I'm curious, and we've also had this little delay as a result of the presidential immunity litigation in the January 6th case. So assuming this goes to trial, maybe not in March, but in April, May, or June, uh, what do you think the prospects are for it to have a significant effect on, on Republican opinion? Or is this just all baked in at this point and we are looking at what we're looking at and uh, the, the fundamentals will not change irrespective of the criminal process. 
So on the center of gravity piece, I don't think the fundamentals will change much because I don't think issues matter. I don't think anything matters to the vast majority of, of like hardcore Republican voters. It is literally a matter of a tattoo of your tribal affiliation. That's it. You're, you're boy, I'm not a liberal. I can't be a liberal. I've got to fight, you know, civil war, whatever it is. Right. And uh, but I think there's enough Republicans that are still not fully sold out on Trump. I mean, look at, you know, you take all the other candidates besides Trump, it's still a healthy amount of the Republican Party, enough so that if you take that amount or the folks that responded to the survey and said they wouldn't vote for Trump if he was convicted, well, let's assume that 90% of them still vote for Trump because it's Trump and Biden. So they hold their nose like they did in 2016 and they vote for Trump. But if 10% of those numbers swing, well, that's important. And that's enough to change an election outcome. And this is my message to the Democrats, by the way. I made the statement the other day, and I'm not asking for the Biden folks to call me, but like I've been out there saying, I'm going to support Joe Biden over Donald Trump. I have yet to hear from the Biden campaign. And I've talked to other Republicans saying that. They're, they're really lazy or doing something. They're not understanding it. And so to the pro-democracy crowd, if we have people that are former Republicans or Republicans that have seen the light coming in and saying, OK, I'm on the team now, unless they're doing it for grifting reasons or whatever else, we have to accept them because we have to be able to put together this disparate group to, for an uncomfortable alliance to defend democracy. So do I think the cases are going to have an earth shattering impact? No, but I certainly don't see how. Donald Trump gets convicted in court, particularly with all this information being made public, and he still win. I mean, unless, you know, unless Biden just completely loses it, I, I think for sure. And that's why I think you're going to see at least Nikki Haley and maybe Haley and Christie stay in the race to see if this does go to court in March and see if they can be there for the inevitable, you know, downfall of Trump potentially. Because that's what would make a big difference is if there's still an open primary then you give Republicans the chance to go away from Trump to another Republican, I think the defections would be much bigger. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you before we run out of time about China. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of years ago, we all would have said, oh, biggest foreign threat to the United States, biggest only adversary near peer power is China. We've just had a half an hour conversation. It's barely been mentioned. Um, what are the, the strong center of American politics from center right to center left uh, that recognizes these issues as matters of concern, what should be the unified field uh, that we all, what should we all uh, aim for with respect to China over the next uh, uh, year or so? Yeah, look, and I think it's important because I think China still is from an actual like straight foreign policy, so not including U.S. democracy, it still is our top foreign policy challenge. I mean, you know, Russia in the intermediate, they're like our 10 meter target because that has a direct impact soon this year on the post-world order. But China's in the background as, as a persistent threat. So for us, I think of it this way. Obviously, we have to harden our cybersecurity. I, I, I hate TikTok. I'll be clear because I think there. I really do believe there's a menacing thing behind TikTok. I, but you know, regardless, the Chinese information war I think is having an effect. Uh, we have to protect our. I was the only Republican, which surprised me, that voted for the Chips Act. 
um, despite that Republicans wrote about half of it because but they just didn't want to give Biden the win. Um, so we have to continue to defend our supply lines and our supply chains. And so I think we need to be thinking that through in case we do end up in a fight with China. The last thing we need is to then be paralyzed in terms of executing that fight. Because China, I guarantee you, they know every part of our supply chain that we're vulnerable. And so we need to near or onshore some of that capacity. And then I think continuing to build our, our military to the point where it's not that we necessarily have to have a military that can defeat China in 48 hours, but we have to have a military that will defeat China ultimately, which I think we have right now. And, uh, and that then changes China's calculus. We're going to have to learn to live with them in the world, uh, but we don't have to learn to live with their expansionism. And the other big thing is that we need to watch next year and even the following year is their economy. We keep hearing, you know, they were supposed to have surpassed us by now, but their economy is slowing down. They have huge demographic issues. You know, President Xi has disappeared as well as, you know, some of his leaders. Uh, something's going on there. And, uh, you know, you've got to keep feeding the masses to survive. And it appears that maybe they're losing the capacity to be able to feed the masses. That may make them dangerous. It also may make them much more weaker. One last question, then I'll let you go. Um, all of this that we've been talking about has one big unifying theme, which is the preservation of democracy and the protection of democracies uh, domestically and abroad. Uh, is there a unifying policy toward that end, or is that just an objective that you organize a hundred different policies around? I think it's just an objective, but I'll say this. I actually, so 2024 is going to suck terribly. <laughs> okay. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to tell you otherwise. It's going to be the worst election we've ever had, probably, at least in our memory. What a, what a ray of sunshine you are. Yes, exactly. But I believe, and I know it feels like it's forever away, but it goes by fast in political years. I believe 2028 is actually going to be pretty amazing. Now, here's why. All new generations, right? all new candidates in both parties. And I think, you know, the potential for a third party movement would actually maybe have legs by 28 right now. It would just be a spoiler. Um, one of the things I'm excited about pushing is this idea of let's all ram dump. It's a pilot term. Let's ram dump all our preconceived notions of what a conservative and a liberal is. And let's even dump those terms and let's come in like we're an alien from outer space see what the problems of our country are and figure out how to fix it. Like we have income inequality, we raised taxes and we lowered taxes and we still have a problem. Somebody's got the answer out there. So in my mind, if we can, if we can kind of recreate the wheel, so to speak, I think it's going to be an amazing 2028. So that's what I would say is keep hope. I think it's going to be tough next year, but I really do think next year is probably going to be the pinnacle of the assholery and hopefully it'll get better after that. We are going to leave it there. Adam Kinzinger, you're a great American. It's good to see your face. You too. And uh, uh, let's get together when you're next in Washington. Will do. Take care, my friend. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Tomorrow we'll have part two of this year-end event. You should become a material supporter of Lawfare so that you can join events like this in the future. Our audio engineer this episode was Anna Hickey.
The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.